you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Second Timothy. Today we continue our series, um, Doctrine. And, and what we are talking here in this series, Doctrine, Our DNA, we're looking at, at various doctrines that we have as a church. These doctrines that we hold, doctrine simply meaning uh, a belief that's held by a church or by a religious organization and just a general sense of doctrine. And so we, we are looking at these doctrines to see what do we as a church, what do we as Watershed hold true and what do we stand on as far as our, our foundation, as far as moving the gospel to those that live around us? What do we stand on? What truths do we hold? And so as we're spending our time through this series, we're going to go the rest of the summer through this, basically going through our belief statement that you can find on our website, and then um, taking us through to the fall where we'll start in Galatians and then... Um, that'll take us all the way through Christmas. So we've got an exciting two series coming up, Doctrine and Galatians, following that up. It'll be good. Um, today we find ourselves talking about the doctrine of Scripture. And so if you will, Second Timothy 3, if you'll, uh, we'll read 16 and 17, and then we'll go from there. Uh, in Second Timothy three sixteen, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. If y'all pray with me, we'll ask the Spirit to guide us through this time. Father God, we come to you and acknowledge that, that we so desperately need your help to reveal your truth, God, that we need you to reveal yourself to us. God, we just pray that, that today your Spirit would would guide us, God, that we would see who you are more clearly, God, that it wouldn't be our own interpretations, but yet it would be you and your spirit revealing who you are, Father God. And we just thank you that you've given us truth. We thank you that, that you haven't left us in the dark, that you revealed who you are through your scripture. And today we just pray that your spirit would do that both individually and collectively as a group. And we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, real quick before we go, I've got a few, if you haven't noticed, everything that we give away is books and all that. These aren't to give away. These are to encourage you. If you want to study more on this, this book, it's by Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashers. It's called Doctrine. Basically, this is an easy systematic theology. What does the Bible say about these topics? Um, it's, a, it's a simple one. Systematic theologies can get way high level-wise that makes you read it twice and your brain still hurts. This one's very accessible, very good. So that's just general doctrine. Another book that, that kind of fits with today is this book called Taking God at His Word. It's by Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor in Michigan. Um, it's very good. Um, dealing with the doctrine of Scripture, this will go a long way of talking about what we're doing today. Very good. Obviously, it's a little more it's a less intimidating. It's not as hard to read. It's very good. I would definitely commend that to you. And then finally, um, this one that I have with me, it's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. It's by Donald Whitney. It, it's very good. It covers all sorts of spiritual disciplines. What do we need to do as Christians? Um, even getting into journaling, um, just understanding how to treat this Christian life we have, and just disciplines to cultivate. Very good too. I'll leave these up here so afterwards you can come look at them um, and see them. There's also one I didn't bring today because it's like a thousand pages of craziness. It's uh, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. 
if you're into big, thick, crazy books, it's very good. But it's, it's a little higher, so some people don't really like it because it makes your brain hurt when you read it. But it's very good. So I didn't carry that along with me because it would have made my backpack impossible to carry. So those are, those are all good in, in helping us. So last week, if we remember, we dealt with the nature of God and, and understanding who God is and talking about how he's uh, the Trinity and understanding that while that's not a, a biblical word, we don't find Trinity in there. It's a good explanation of who God is. He's the Father, Son, and the Spirit, understanding that, that he's all three, but Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal. They're, they're not separate. They're the same God. It's not tritheism. It's still monotheistic, but we see God represented in all. Not that he is different modes, but he's all the same, all working, all pre-existent, all just has always been. And so we talked about that nature, and we understood that, that through this series in doctrine, we're primarily going to be during, dealing with those doctrines that we need unity on. The Trinity is one. We need to all have unity on the Trinity. It's an important doctrine. It's one we stand on. So throughout this series, we're primarily on those. So the, the reason we're doing this is because if you have got asked about where you go to church, or often I get asked about Watershed, and they understand that we're planning a church, the question is always, so what kind of church are you? That's, that's always the question you get. So what kind of church are you? And, and so we're doing this doctrine series to, to explain who we are based on what we believe, because that's who makes you up. What you hold true in your heart is actually what you see evident in what you become. And so we teach this doctrine. We're talking about this. It's basically going through our belief statement that we have on our website. And so we continually want to draw our attention back to that because that's a way that, that you can understand who we are. If you don't consider yourself a part of Watershed, that's a place to go and understand who we are. But it's also if you do and, and people are wanting to understand, then you can point them to that because it's there. So when we get into scripture, we define it in our belief statement as the scripture is the word of God that is written by godly men under the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit. All the books of the Old and New Testament are equal in authority and inspiration. Since scripture is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is without error. And that's, that's the way we've, we've defined scripture, a good summary statement. But then every time you read something like that, you're like, and? What does it actually mean? How does that fit my life? Because if it doesn't fit our life, then what's the point of knowing it? What, what's the point of having this abstract statement? It might sound good, but you're like, okay, and that doesn't translate into the way my life works. So today, that's what my aim is to, to show you, unpack that statement a little bit, show you what Scripture is, why we have it, why it's important, and then at the end, we'll see how it all comes together. So again, uh, I apologize because at first, it's going to sound a little more teachy, than, than preachy, because that's just what, I don't know if that's a word, teachy and preachy, but we went with it. Um, but we're going we're gonna to use that time to kind of teach what is the scripture, build a foundation before we can then apply it to our lives, okay? So I know it's a, it's a little different than, than typical, like when we get into Galatians, we'll go verse by verse, expound those, and say, so today we'll kind of be over the play, all over the place. Not crazy though. So where to go? What, what is scripture? How do we get the Bible that we have today? When, when you hold up the word, when you hold up scripture, what, 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 where do we get this? What, what makes it up? So real quick, I'm going to do kind of the Bible by the numbers, okay? Um, I used to read Sports Illustrated, and they always had the little by the numbers. And I don't know why I would always read that, because it never gained any useful information. That's not the case today. This is useful information, even though it's the same format. So where do we get it? It was written roughly over about a 1,500-year period. 
Okay, pretty broad period, about 1,500 years by about 40 authors, not about, there's 40 authors of the books. It was written on three continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, all were, the people were. Um, and it's also written in three languages. Most people just talk about Greek and Hebrew. There's actually some sections that were written in, they call it biblical Aramaic, but um, there's also some argument that some of parts of like Ezra and Nehemiah, some of the Old Testament were actually Persian. But we go Greek, Hebrew, some Aramaic. All 40 authors wrote in those languages, the original languages. Obviously, I'm not holding a Greek New Testament. In those 40 authors, their books and everything, my version that I have right here is 1,252 pages. Obviously, if you have a large print, more pages. But roughly about 1,000 pages. In those 1,000 pages, there's 1,189 chapters. That if you read Genesis, Revelation, it's 1,189 chapters. And in those chapters, there's 31,173 verses. So it's a lot of information. As I just said, I didn't bring a systematic theology. It was 1,000 pages. I'm saying, hey, this is important, 1,000 pages. Okay? Of those 1,000 pages, all those chapters, there's 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. That's, that's basically what we have as Scripture. Everyone that we have... In this, this is the English Standard Version that, that I preach with. It's a word-for-word translation. There's different translations. English Standard, New American Standard are more word-for-word. They try to get the words exactly right. And there's some like New International Version, which is real popular, is more phrase-by-phrase. Phrase. So they don't, they don't necessarily care word-by-word word in the New American Standard or the New International Version, but they're going to give you the phrase. And ESV is different. I use ESV because I like the word for word if we're going to be studying it because you get a more accurate picture, I think. So why are all these collected? Because right now, and, and you heard over the past, like with Da Vinci Code and some of that stuff that's come up, how are these books contained? How are these 66 books what we have and all those others that are left out? Okay. What, what, that's what's called the canon of scripture. Canon is these books that are organized that are considered the inspired word of God. So that happened around the 4th century. So it's interesting when you get into that because 4th century, what happened? Obviously, time started back over in zero and we started counting up. So what happened at 400-year span that we, finally, that we finally actually get the scripture that we have today? And the thing that we need to understand about that, that, that it's important, is they didn't just create the list then. They formalized the list. When they came together and they closed the canon, closed meaning there's no more books to be added with it, and that's the end of Revelation, says you do not take or add to this. Um, they basically took what the church already held as true, inspired God's word, and just formally brought it together. They didn't sit down in the fourth century and think, I'll take that one. No, we're going to throw that one out of there. I'll take this one. They formalized what the church already held was true. There's other gospels that are not included, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's other gospels, but the church never held them as scripture, and that's why they were left out of the canon. It was something stylistically or the message, but they left that out of there. So we say all of that to understand why scripture is important. Why do we need to understand scripture? Because it's God's way of revealing himself to us. God, we need God to reveal himself to us if we're gonna understand who he is. We talked last week about not understanding the Trinity, and, and how it, it's actually a good thing if you can't explain God because that puts him higher than us. If we can understand him, is he really God? 
And the same is with Revelation. If we can truly know who he is apart from his help, that's really not a good thing. So two types of revelation real quick, and then we'll move into some more of this, how it's practical. Um, general knowledge. This is general revelation. General revelation is simply common to everyone. You can see this in creation. Romans 1 tells us that, that in creation we see that there's a creator. We see that. Everybody, we see um, general revelation in our conscience. Everybody in here would agree, we hope would agree, that murder is wrong. Why? He says somehow there's this moral concept in us. That's God revealing this general revelation. It's part of who he is that's just generally given to everyone. Most people would say murder's not okay. You'd agree with that. So we see that kind of in our conscience. We see common grace, the fact that we have life. When Adam and Eve sinned, he would have been just to punish them because the wages of sin is death, yet we have life. That's a common grace. It's a general revelation to everyone. We know who he is through these common things. But then also, there's the next level, which is special revelation, and that's where we get into the scripture. This special or specific revelation is, is information that we know that brings us to salvation. And, and that's back to Romans 1. It says that there's enough in creation to condemn us, but not enough to save us. So we need this extra revelation. We need this special revelation. That's where we get scripture. It happened originally through the prophets. If you look in the Old Testament, God had people speak for him. He had the prophets. So the Lord says, you see that all over the, the, the Old Testament. And that's the special revelation of God. You see it with Jonah. Jonah's called to go to Nineveh to, to proclaim the word. He tells them, here's what's going to happen unless you repent, unless you change your ways. What did they do? They changed, and, and he did not condemn them for that because there was a special revelation. They knew who God was. It was an opportunity for them to change and then change into that salvation. So we see special revelation. We see it now through Scripture. God has given us this word to understand in this special revelation because when we look in scripture, we see the information that we need that leads us to salvation. It's not, okay, everyone agrees that murder is bad, but it shows us who Christ is. It shows us who God is in a way that leads us then to salvation. And that's how God reveals himself to us. So then we need to be careful how we study God's word because it's what we see of him. In, in Kevin DeYoung's book, the one I told you about, he says, um, we need the revelation of God to know God. The only sure, saving, final, perfect revelation of God is found in Scripture. And only in Scripture do we encounter the fullness of God's self-disclosure. And so what he's saying there is that when we look in Scripture, that's the only place that we're going to find the saving, perfect revelation of God. We're not going to find it anywhere else. We're going to find it contained in Scripture. And that's the only place that we have this full self-disclosure. This is the only place that God's fully disclosed himself to us, this special revelation. And because of that, we need to study it. We need to understand how to do that. But Mark Driscoll comments and says that thus rightly interpreting particular sections of Scripture requires paying attention both to immediate context and overall context. So we have this special revelation, we understand it, but we need to look at context. It was, when we say it was inspired by the Spirit, we're not saying that, that God moved their hand and wrote the words. He inspired them, they wrote it. You see the author's special personalities. Okay? A big distinct difference that's always funny is Peter and Paul. If you look at the original language, you look at the Greek Paul has very good grammar, very good use of language, which makes sense because he was educated. Peter, not so much. 
But, but so we have to read that. We have to understand that. Paul's just very eloquent with the Greek. Peter wasn't as educated. So there's a, you see the, dis, the difference. So we have to understand that. Some of it is poetry. We have to read it as such. Some of it's prophecy. We have to read it in light of that context specific to where it is. But then also the overarching themes. We can't pull one part out and say, oh, well, this means this. When somewhere else there's a different theme on the same thing. So does it contradict itself? No, we have to study and understand so we can see the true thought. We must pay attention to overarching plot of the Bible if we're going to truly understand who God is. And see, and that's where we understand who God is, is because we see that this is one story. From Genesis to Revelation, there's one story unfolding. There's many characters. Some are developed more than others. Some are just kind of hit or miss. But the one thing that we must understand is that all of Scripture, the main character is Jesus. When we look at the Old Testament, you're thinking, well, he's not there. We'll talk about a second. There's, there's parts where it is. Jesus is the main character of Scripture. It's not us. And it's critical to understand that if we're going to see who God is. If we're going to go to the Word, we need to see that Jesus is the main point, not us. Because that changes how we see what it says. Okay, most of the time we come to it, and, and it's easy to treat it almost as like Aesop's fables. We see these stories, and oh, that's a good moral story. And that's, that's, that's an error to attaching that because it's misplacing who the point of the Bible is. If the point of the Bible is us, then yes, they're good stories to look at. They're good moral teaching to understand. But if we realize that the main character is Christ, then that changes everything. They're not just stories to go to for moral. It's how do we live our lives? What is the reflection of us living our lives this way meant to the world? Jesus himself revealed that in John 5. He says, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So he's saying there in John 5 that, no, the scripture, you think you go there for eternal life. No, the scripture points to me. In Luke 24, he says, and Luke's talking about Jesus has just spoken. And Luke says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, he, Jesus, interpreted them, interpreted them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So you see that Jesus sat down in Luke 24 after he had appeared to him. This is after the, this is after the resurrection. He appeared to him. And then he went, starting with Moses, and then to the prophets and said, and interpreted, here's everything that bears witness to me. So he sat them down and took them through the Old Testament scripture and said, this is where it is me. This is where it's me. And so he understood that scripture was about himself. Scripture is about himself. In Matthew 5, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So not only is scripture, he the main character, but he fulfills everything in scripture. He fulfills everything. So we see that Jesus understood and taught that scripture, the Old Testament, was all about him. And so we should do the same thing. We should look at scripture and see that from the beginning, there's this story. It starts with creation. God created Talked about that yesterday or last week, how he created. He didn't have to. Why did he create? We don't know, but he did. And then what happened? We have this fall. Adam and Eve sinned. They turned. They're deceived. And then what happens the rest of the way is there's this redemption. The Old Testament's through the sacrifice, and then ultimately with Jesus and the ultimate sacrifice, and then eventually there's restoration. That's the completion of the story. So we have fall, creation, redemption, and this restoration when everything is new, and we see that everything in there points to Christ. It points to Christ. But real quick, it always, when I was growing up, and then I heard stuff like that, it always like, it doesn't say him in the Old Testament. 
You don't see Jesus mentioned. There's not that name. So how is he in the Old Testament? How is he on there? It always threw me off. When I would hear people talking about that, I'm like, do they not know how to read? Because obviously it's not there. And what we see there is there are these appearances in the Old Testament. They, the, the big word is called a Christophany. And, and what that is, is it's a meaning that there's this physical, this vision of the Lord. He appears to people in the Old Testament, and it's a, a pre-incarnation because he hasn't come. And so there's this pre-incarnation experience with Jesus. In Genesis 18, there's a story of Abraham talking to the Lord. And he has this, he's having a conversation about Sodom, Genesis 18. It's this conversation with the Lord, and it's constantly with the Lord. You see it when Gideon's talking to the, the angel of the Lord is often how it's said, but it's always referring to the Lord. And there's a difference there. It's the, the way they use that. It's not just this general thing. It's this appearance of Christ. In Genesis 32, Jacob has this all-night wrestling match. He's wrestling all night, and then at the end, he realizes that it's God that he's wrestling with. It's, it's Jesus that he's wrestling with, and what happens when he realizes it, he pokes him on the hip. It's funny, because you can see him thinking all night, I've wrestled, I've, I've done good, I've survived, and then Jesus, he hits him on the hip, and now he's got a limp. It's like, yeah, I'll let you go that whole time, all right? It's so, but we see this with Jesus. One of the famous ones that most people don't think about is in Daniel. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What happens? They, they fell to, to worship the other God. And so what happens? They throw them into the furnace. And then when they look into the furnace, they see four people walking around. And, and the description they give in Daniel is that in the fourth one was like the son of God. That's how they described him. It's Christ. He's walking with them. And what's even cool about that is when we see that, there's a perfect picture of this deliverance. Here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're being delivered by Christ from certain death, just as eventually in the New Testament we see Christ delivers us from certain death. Why? Because of who he is. And that's what we get in the scripture. So we see then the plot line has one reoccurring main character. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's always Christ. It always points back to him. Jesus isn't plan B in the New Testament. God didn't just come in and say, okay, all these prophecies happen, now I'm going to come as Jesus and I'm going to make sure I get all those right. Here, no, it's not adding a character at the end. It's a continual revelation of that character. We talked about it last week. There's this progressive revelation. You see bits and pieces and eventually see the full picture. That's what Christ is. And that's why we can then say with confidence that when when Scripture speaks, God speaks is how Martin Luther put it. We see that it's reliable. Why? Because it's one main story. It has one character The main character is Christ. And so we see that it's reliable. It's God's word. And it's reliable because of that. Proverbs 30 says that every word of God proves true. Every word. So we can look at scripture and we can read it. And there's parts that are hard to understand. And we'll we'll talk about that later. But every word of it proves true. Why? Because it's God's word. It's God's word. In Numbers 23 it says God's not a man that he should lie. And how good is that? That we can, here's God's word. It's all scripture, as we saw in Timothy, is breathed out by God. So all this is breathed out by God. And that's good. Why? Because God's not a man that he should lie. So it's reliable. It's authoritative. We can be confident with our scriptures because of the word of God. We can go to this with confidence. Why? Because God's not a man that he should lie. All scripture is breathed out by God. So we see that what we find in here is true. It's reliable. It's capable of teaching us. And we see that it's accurate 
Because it's God. It doesn't lie. There's no difference. The, the theological term there is called inerrancy. There's a lot of people that, that don't like inerrancy. One, in a sense of the word, kind of can mislead. Um, Wayne Grudem defines it this way. He says, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that's contrary to fact. And the key thing you need to understand there is in the original manuscripts. Because you see that? Script, inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything contrary to fact. I'm not holding an original manuscript. So how do we know it's true? Because there's ways that you can do that. There's been so much testing done on Scripture. There, there's parts of the Old Testament where the kings, the lineage of the kings, are compared to contemporary, and the exact syllables are right. And there's one part where there's 180 syllables of these names and these kings and these titles, and it gets every single thing right. Every single thing right. But then you look at other lists that aren't biblical and there's something like 70% of the time they're inaccurate. Some of the time they're not even the exact same on one syllable. So you see the Old Testament and those kings and understanding that is true. In the New Testament, there's, we have something around 40,000 fragments of scripture. The closest one's about 50 years dating to the original. So, and when you look at that, 99% of the errors are scribes, the, the way they spell, like the way we spell honor and the way people in Britain spell honor. It's different, but it's the same word. So did it change the meaning? No. So all of those, all of the mistakes then also, when you look at it and you do all these surveys and understanding the, the discrepancies or the changes, none of them have to do with doctrinal issues. They're all spelling or changes or they add a word that was implied in one, it's written in another it doesn't change the meaning. It's just more visible. So we see that our scripture that we have is fine. And really, up until the last 100, 150 years or so, none of that was debated. It's in the last 100, 150 years ago that, that scripture has, has come up in this thing, with this idea of, well, maybe it's not. But if we look at it as God's word, then we have to see that it's true. Because God's not a man that he would lie. Kevin DeYoung again says, that we trust the Bible because it's God's Bible. And God being God, we have every reason to take him at his word. And if he is who he says he is, if he is who he reveals him to, then we have no reason to then to take him at his word. Okay? So with all of that, that it's accurate, it's reliable, it's authoritative, there's one main person, Jesus, what does that mean in your life? How does that rely, relate to our daily lives? That's when we go back to Second Timothy. If you still have your finger there, Go back to 2 Timothy 3. Okay, we'll read it again. And then this is where we find ourselves in the practical. Paul, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul is teaching Timothy. This is like his protege. It says he's Timothy's mentor. And so we see Paul saying, okay, as you're, as you're teaching people, in verse 16, he says, all scriptures breathed out by God. So we see that it's all breathed out by God. Okay, every single part of it is breathed out. This is the very words of God is what Paul's saying. What you have is breathed out by God. Every word. If you go back to Matthew 5, Jesus says in 5.18, For truly I say until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. And what he means there, that iota, that's literally what he's talking about is like an accent mark. And so what Jesus is saying there is that every single little aspect, not just the themes of the Bible, the words of the Bible are God's words. 
Even the little accent mark is exactly there because that's how God wanted it. So we see this, that all scriptures breathe out by God. Okay, that's great. So what do we do then with it? That was where we see the first thing, is that, that scripture teaches us. It shows us the course. What, is it, what does he say first? That it's profitable, profitable for teaching. And, and if you're looking at that, and, and often we've said that, that we have this trajectory of our lives. We're going on this trajectory. That this first part, what Paul's saying, is that it's all breathed out by God, and it's profitable, profitable for teaching. It shows us how to live. It teaches us the course. It gives us guidance in our lives. It, it keeps us on course, it shows us point A to point B, beginning of our life to the inner life, where we should go. And so then we have to do that is what we do is when we look at Scripture and we look and we flip its pages, we understand that it's going to reveal what we need to live like. Sometimes it's very specific. Sometimes it's a theme. So the, the way you look at that is when you understand is do you often simply go to the Bible when something happens? If something's going on, do you go to find an answer? It's not that type of guidance. It's, you're not going to say, oh, I'm supposed to move. Do I need to take this job or that job? Well, let's go to John. It's not going to tell you that. It's not going to do that. But how many times do we do that? When I was growing up, that's what, what do you do? You go to the Bible. Everyone says, go to the Bible. Okay, that's great. It has nothing to say about anything in Amos that I'm dealing with. Because it's not that type. It's not a road map. It's a, it's a guidance system. It's going to show us where we're supposed to go. It's not going to tell you which job is better, but it's going to say that everything we should do, we should take up our cross and follow Christ. And so if this choice leads away from that, then no, we shouldn't take that choice. But it's not going to tell you no. We see where our lives are supposed to go. It teaches us the course of our life. It keeps us on track. It shows us the track. It reveals to us where we should go. Second, it shows us when we're off course. It rebukes us. Okay, look at that, that next part. It's profitable for teaching and then for reproof or rebuking. So not only does it show us the course, it shows us when we're off course. It shows us when we're off course. In, in Philippians 4, 6, it says, do not be anxious about anything. That's reproof. That's showing you that you're off course. If we're anxious about something, it's saying don't be anxious. You're not on course if you're anxious, which is really hard because we have a society full of people that like to be in control. And if we're not in control, it freaks us out. Maybe you're a good planner. Maybe you like to plan out your life. I'm not so much of a good planner. I think about it, but I never write it down. It drives Lindsay crazy, especially stuff with, with church and everything. I'm like, I've got my list. It's not written. She wants a written list. So it freaks her out. She has this tendency to be anxious. I have a tendency to be anxious in other ways. So what we see here is that when we look at this in Philippians, what Paul's saying is don't be anxious. It's, it's, it's showing us when you're off course. If you're anxious about things in life, then Philippians is saying, no, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't try to control your life so much that you, you worry. It says that in another, but Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. That's reproof. That's rebuking us. It's showing us when we are off course. It's revealed to us the track. And then we're living our lives and we see ourselves veering. It shows us that. It's the little light that blinks that tells us we're off course. But then thankfully, it doesn't keep us there. 
It doesn't, doesn't keep us just knowing that we're off course. What does it do? What's the next thing? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, rebuking, showing us off course, and then what? For correction. Then it, then it shows us for correction. We see that Scripture brings us back on course. In Philippians 4, 6, the rest of that verse, it says, do not be anxious about anything. Shows us where it's off course. What's the next part? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So don't be anxious. Reproof. Correction comes then. says, but in everything, pray. It brings us back on course. It says, don't be anxious. You're off course when you're anxious, when you're worrying about everything. Don't be anxious. But it doesn't leave us there. And so many times, the advice we get from friends or people, in this, it shows us where we're off, but it doesn't help us get back. Scripture doesn't do that. It's profitable for reproof, rebuke, but also for correction. It brings us back. This is hard for me to understand because I don't do a good job of this as a dad. I'm really good at telling specifically Keaton more because we interact more on things like this. I'm good at telling him where he's off. I'm not as good at telling him where he's come back. I'm not a good at correction. And it's something I have to repent of often and understand that. So it's the same thing as we see that God's given us everything. He shows us where we're off course. We're off the course that he's defined, but then also shows us how to come back. Don't be anxious. If you find yourself anxious, what should you do? Pray. Let your request be made known to God. I'm anxious. I'm, I'm trying to understand this. I don't know what's happening. I feel like I'm out of control. I need you to give me that confidence that security in knowing that what you have is best for me. It's reproof and correction. It brings us back. But then also, what does it do? It prepares us. It prepares us. Look at that last part. It brings us back. It corrects us. And then what? And it's useful or profitable for teaching in righteousness that a man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So it doesn't just correct us, but then it says, no, but it's going to teach you how to stay there. It's going to prepare you for every good work. It prepares us to continue living the life on the course that God has defined for us in Scripture. So we can go to Scripture, we can go all over Scripture and see that what we have to live is everything we need here. There's reproof and correction. There's all over. There's verses like that. I just pulled the Philippians one because I think it's easier for us to relate because we all try to control our lives. We're always anxious about what's coming next. And so that's a, it's reproof. And then it corrects us because everything pray. You don't have to be in control of your life. Why? Because God is sovereign over everything. So he says, don't, be, don't worry about it. Let him know what you're worried about. Let him no, and then he will with you, give you the spirit, will understand, will do that. Scripture prepares us for what life throws at us. And it's essential that we find ourselves then in Scripture so that we can be prepared for life. Just simply knowing that we're not supposed to be anxious isn't good enough. We should constantly find ourselves soaking in the word. Donald Whitney says there's simply no healthy life apart from the diet of milk and meat of Scripture. Therefore, if we would know God and be godly, we must know the word of God intimately. We need to be in the word. There's no healthy life apart from a diet of scripture. There's no healthy life. And then the, the objection is commonly, well, that's good if you understand it. And then he continues. That's funny. It's like he knows. He's like, oh, there's no, no good life without diet. And then he continues. He says, 
But don't let a feeling of inadequacy keep you from delighting in learning the Bible on your own. So he's saying, it's okay if you don't understand some of it. Don't let your feeling of inadequacy keep you from any of it. Because that's what we do often. If we don't understand one part, what do we do? We just quit. Why would I go back to that if I don't understand it? But how are you ever going to understand it if you don't go back to it? That's what he's saying. Don't let that inadequacy. The Bible speaks to this too. That's what's, that's what's so cool. Second Peter 3.15, it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. So here's Peter. He's talking about Paul in Second Peter 3. He says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to according to you to the wisdom given to him. So he's saying here, okay, count it patience of the Lord as salvation. This is what Paul wrote. And then listen, this is the funniest part. I think this is the funniest part in the verse, in the Bible. In verse 16, it says, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks to them in these matters. So he writes to us according to the wisdom that he's given. And he speaks to them in these matters when he writes these letters. And then the next thing he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Peter's like, I don't understand this dude. He's like, he writes, he's given this wisdom and he writes, and there's some things that are hard to understand. And then he goes on, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what what Peter's saying there is, yes, I don't understand this guy sometimes. It's hard to understand Paul. Isn't that comforting to know that Peter, an author in the Bible, thought another author in the Bible was hard to understand? That gives me confidence. Great, I'm just like one of them. Why? Because it's all spirit given. It's all spirit. So what does he say? What's the ignorant and unstable twist? And see, and that's where we need to understand it. This, just because it's hard to understand, we need to be cautioned. We're corrected in thinking that we need to then twist it to where we understand it. So many of the heresies of the church have come from people trying to explain scriptures through their own interpretation because they can't understand it. Or maybe it doesn't agree with them. Thomas Jefferson is famous for sitting in the White House and cutting out parts of his Bible that he didn't agree. But we don't ever question him, right? Our founding fathers, they're great Christian men. He tore out his Bible because he didn't like it. If it's hard to understand, you don't do away with it. You ask the Spirit for guidance and understanding. You keep going into it because the theme of the Bible is one character, Jesus. So eventually, that's what will happen. Don't lose heart. That's why Psalms 119.34 says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. The psalmist is saying, I need, your, I need you to give me understanding so I can keep your law. But how many times do we fall from that? How many times do we feel to realize that if we would simply open our scripture, be intimately connected with it, and ask God to give us understanding that eventually that will happen. There's going to be a point in the scripture. Sometimes it's word for word. It's chapter verse specific to your needs. Other times it's themes. But it will always apply to your life because it's always about Christ. It's always about him. And then when we understand that, again, we can repeat with the psalmist in 119.105 that says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows us the course. It shows us where we move off course. It brings us back on course and it prepares us to continue on that course. It's a light, a lamp into our feet. So as we look at scripture, we should see that scripture being God's word should be placed in this elevated position. But somehow it's fallen. 
Scripture's the, the final authority. That was one of the main things of the Reformation. It was sola scriptura, which is Scripture alone. Not that that's the only place we see it, but it's the final authority. And that's the other thing, is Scripture's the final authority. And not the church, not what the church says about Scripture, but Scripture itself is the final authority. So we should elevate it to that. And what's interesting to me, and it's very convicting to me, is how flippantly I seemingly treat the word often. And then John Calvin says it this way when talking about the authority of Scripture. He says, There is therefore no small proof of the authority of Scripture that it was sealed with the blood of so many witnesses, especially when it was considered that in bearing testimony to the faith, they met death, not with a fanatical enthusiasm as erring spirits and sometimes want to do, but with a firm, constant, yet sober, godly zeal. And he says that about Scripture. Because we can look back and there's people that literally were martyred because they translated it into English. The church burned them at the stake for translating it to English so that people could have it. That was one of the main things Martin Luther was against the church in and why they didn't like it because he was translating it into the common language. It was in Latin or Greek and most people didn't speak that. So they put it in the common language. There's people dying. And that's what, what Calvin's saying here is, is that there's no small proof of the authority of Scripture. Well, because people were dying to simply uphold Scripture. To say that everyone can come to it, that it's capable of that. That people literally died. And how many times do we not even go to it because we don't understand that they're giving their life to have the translation that we have? And it didn't just happen before Calvin, it happened after. There's this whole period of people dying for Scripture. Yet we don't go to it because we don't think we understand it. Maybe we should give a little more effort sometimes. And that's myself the same. I'm like, it's easier to not get up early in the morning or not to go to the Scripture and, and wrestle with it and try to understand it. I don't have that much time. Maybe we should make time and understand because that's when we see where we're supposed to go. That's when we see that Christ is the main person of our life, the main person of the story of redemption, the story of God is Christ. And that's when we point to him, we see our lives. So I'll leave you with this, a couple questions. Do you delight in scripture? Do you, do you open it at times and do you simply delight in it? Do you find comfort in scripture? Do you love the word so much so that if it was required, you would give your life for it because it's still happening these days? Just because we're here and we live in a place where we can gather like this doesn't mean we should hold this to less of an authoritative position. So do you love scripture? Not that you completely understand it, but do you love it? Do you seek it? Do you try to dive into it? When I was first saved, I remember I had that zeal, that, 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 that godly zeal that Calvin was talking about, and I would always go to it. And then what happens? Time goes by and you fade away. That's when you get David in Psalms 51 that says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me that, that joy, and, and part of that joy is getting into the word and delighting in it. So do you find yourself doing that? If not, Ask God to give you that strength and the understanding to dive into that 
because that's when we'll see that our life is truly on course and that we're prepared for every good work that we've been called to do. Let's pray.